Are you ready to take your leadership skills to the next level? Do you want to lead with confidence, inspire your team, and achieve your career goals? I'm excited to announce Lead Intuit is now offering leadership coaching. Picture this, 60 minutes of focused one-on-one coaching that will transform the way you lead. Whether you're a seasoned executive or just starting out on your leadership journey, Lead Intuit has the expertise and guidance to help unleash everyone's full leadership potential. With one-on-one coaching with me, you'll develop powerful leadership strategies, enhance your communication skills, build a high-performing team, and achieve your career aspirations. The website, leadintoit.co, is your gateway for us to work together and create a tailored coaching plan to fit your needs and goals. So don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to supercharge your leadership skills. Visit leadintoit.co, that's leadintoit.co, today. You're listening to episode 36 of the Lead Into a Podcast. I'm Sarah Greco, and I have over 10 years of experience in various roles and industries. During this time, I learned just how crucial leadership is as both an employee and a leader myself. This has led me on a mission to inspire and provide resources for those who have a desire to be a leader in both their career and their lives. The Lead Into a Podcast is designed to help you learn how to be a leader with advice, tools, tips, and inspiration from people with all different types of backgrounds. Let's get started. In this week's episode, I sit down with Ron Carucci to talk about his new book, To Be Honest, The Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose, which will be releasing on May 25th. So in this conversation, we talked about what conditions organizations create an environment that people will be more willing to tell the truth, be fair, to serve a greater good, and in what conditions do organizations create an environment where people might lie, steal, or cheat. We also talk about the aspects that are necessary to have honesty in the workplace. A little bit about Ron. Ron has a 30-year track record of helping organizations adopt strategies that lead to accelerated growth and designing programs to execute those strategies. He's also a two-time TED speaker and the best-selling author of eight books, including an Amazon number one, Rising to Power. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Thanks, Ron, so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Sarah, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I've read some of your stuff. I've seen your TED Talk. So much to talk to you about today. But first, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So I spend my days uh, working alongside my colleagues at a firm that I helped start called Navalent. And we're a boutique organizational transformation firm. We spend our days traipsing the halls of medium-sized companies, large companies uh, that are in the throes of some very complex, messy change. That could be strategic change. It could be cultural change. It could be organizational design change. And we work alongside them to help construct the, 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 the point from A to B, the, the, the way to get from A to B, and how to navigate all the pitfalls in trying to get from A to B. Uh, and those are usually multi-year journeys. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, it's, a th- it's a thrilling way to spend your days. <laughs> Sounds like it. What brought you to this passion to kind of help out with these types of plans? Oh, gosh. Uh, You know, I think um, even as a as a kid, I always had a fascination with organizing human endeavor, you know, people coming together to try, you know, whether it was organizing stickball games in my neighborhood or organizing (laughs) a school or 
I think I always had a natural fascination for what happens when people came together to collaborate in the service of some larger, larger effort beyond anything that any one person could do. Mm-hmm. That just that, that passion for that kind of work grew in all kinds of collaborative ways over the early parts of my education and into my early days of my career. And eventually, you know, through a variety of, you know, interesting twists and turns of my life, ended up in the field of organizational psychology, working in organizations uh, to help actually architect and plan those changes. And it's never been boring. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I feel like it's something that's always needed. Well, it's the one, I mean, I think certainly disruptive change is the one thing we can, we can count on every day. When you wake up, it's probably not going to be the same when you finish the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in these days, in a year like we've had in 2020, uh, it's especially true. So if you were not committed to being agile and adaptive before this year, uh, you certainly were forced to be this year. Mm-hmm. And if you still refuse to learn it after that, you probably aren't here anymore. <laughs> very true. Very true. Uh, what are some unique challenges that you've seen from this year specifically? Well, uh, you know, I mean, gosh, where do you start, right? Um, <laughs> we've seen, we've, I think we've seen organizations be forced into technological um, uh, adoptions that they were either working actively to avoid or are wary of. And now by a forcing function have been able to embrace, you know, what is, what is a virtual, a virtual workforce actually mean? How do we accommodate mm-hmm. hybrid models of organizing work? What, what assumptions have now been upended about where we locate work? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which then introduced a whole host of other issues in the workforce of, well, how relevant are people's personal lives to me now, since I spend every day in their living room um, or their kitchen or their basement. Um, I now I'm very intimate with their children because they run into the meetings all the time mm-hmm. looking for help homework. Mm-hmm. So our personal lives have completely blurred into our professional lives, um, which has created a host of mental health challenges. So now the topic that used to be taboo uh, to talk about now has become mainstream fair because it's center, center stage playing itself out in our daily interactions with people. So it's been really interesting to watch things that have never been more than tertiary parts of our organizational lives now show up center stage. And forcing people to be more empathic, forcing leaders to be more compassionate, forcing us to rethink our assumptions about what does it mean to be a team mm-hmm. or what does it mean to work collaboratively or what does it mean to set boundaries in our lives? What is that we've, we've completely overhauled the definition or the appreciation of self-care, mm-hmm. right? So, so it's just been fascinating to watch this series of upending paradigms of things we used to believe that this year... God, all had to get thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I completely 100% can't agree with you more just from my own personal experience because the team that I was working on or working with the past like eight months, I've never met them in person or if I had, it was maybe for like 10 minutes at a conference before the pandemic hit. So we had to learn how to collaborate and work together without basically meeting each other. And we were all in different time zones across the United States. It was the most interesting science experiments I've ever been a part of. (laughs) Well, and it's, I mean, and and you not only experiments, a good word, Sarah, but this is the kind of experiment where you're forced to take the lessons and apply them the next day to a new experiment, Mm -hmm. right? These these are not casual moments. These are becoming new normals. 
and even that's a terrible phrase. I, you know, people looking for the new normal. I, what, what, what's a new normal today will be, you know, hackneyed tomorrow. Right. Um, and everybody is clamoring for our, our getting back to whatever mm-hmm. they think that means. There's no going back to anything. Mm-hmm. Even when we go back to work to the office, it's not going to be going back to the office. And so, and even after we're all vaccinated, it won't be the same anymore. Right. And so um, the, the great news is we have this extraordinary luxury of choice right now. What we, despite the tragedies of this past year, um, you know, scientifically or, um, you know, from our, from the diseased issues from politically, socially, the social unrest we've faced, despite those tragedies, we did see human, many humans step up to new levels of compassion and generosity, to levels of empathy we've never had to demonstrate before, to levels of ingenuity from really fun and creative zany Zoom musical videos created from, you know, all over the country to, you know, our scientific community collaborating across the world to get a vaccine under a year, right? So we saw the absolute best of humanity show up uh, by necessity and by conviction. Um, We have the luxury of choosing to keep all that with us, right? Even after the pandemic is gone, uh, and we're vaccinated and we're back to whatever the next version of normal is, we don't have to regress back to our self-interested, siloed, self-absorbed, neurotic selves that some of us were before the pandemic. We could choose to stay generous. We could choose to stay compassionate. We could choose to be more mindful of people's suffering that we once dismissed as not worthy of my empathy or people's plights that we once dismissed as their own fault. Um, we could choose to stay um, open-minded and curious about people who are different than us rather than ignoring them. So my hope going into 2021 is that we choose to take that choice with us and, and make a, a shared c- commitment to, to stay this better version of ourselves that we've discovered that we you know, painfully were forced into um, and decide we don't have to go back to being the lesser versions of ourselves just because the pandemic is gone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's funny how, I I was just going on a walk with my family just before this interview. And I was like, it's so interesting how much I've slowed down, but how much I appreciate this time. I mean, I miss traveling. I miss like going to different parts of the world and seeing my friends across the country. But I think looking back on this time, I'll take it as I slowed down. I got to spend time with my family and I really got a chance to appreciate this time to reflect and see what I can improve on and where my focuses were before versus now and which ones do I want to keep. So it's a great reflection time. Completely agree with you. And that's a choice, right? We don't, you know, human beings don't learn from experience because mm-hmm. otherwise why would we be so many dumb experiences, right? We learn from the analysis of experience. So the only way we're going to intentionally take with us the things we, the ground we gained as humanity in the last year is if we reflect and make Mm -hmm. the choice to do so. Yes. And speaking of analysis, I think that leads us to our main topic for the interview today, which is a book that you have coming out soon called To Be Honest. I read a little bit about what you sent and it sounds awesome. Do you want to go into a little bit of background about that first? Yeah, sure. So we, um, I began the research for this book maybe three plus years ago. Uh, following on the heels of the research for our last book, uh, which was called Rising to Power. It was about leaders and their ascent to bigger jobs. And we, um, you know, we took the application of, uh, of artificial intelligence and IBM Watson to study this 
large database of interviews we, we have as a firm to see what it would teach us. And at that point, our data was 2,700 interviews strong. And it taught us a ton about why it is so many leaders, when they elevate, they fail and how to succeed when elevating. So five, you know, fast forward five years now, our, at 15 years, we have maybe over 3,200 interviews in that database. And we thought, let's go back. So last time we isolated for individual behavior, let's, let's, talk, let's look at the system. Let's look at the organization as a construct and see what it is we might learn about how it behaves and what it might tell us. But this time we decided to sort of not go the academic route of giving the, the, uh, the, the artificial intelligence a hypothesis or a set of constructs and variables to say, you know, compare these things. We said, well, if the, if the data, if the technology is really intelligent, let's have it tell us what we should be asking it. So we went in with a much wider lens on the, the data to see what drill sites it might come back with. And one of the drill sites was on the issue of honesty and truth-telling hmm. in organizations. Under what conditions do, do organizations create environments in which people will tell the truth, be fair, uh, and serve a greater good? And under what conditions will do organizations create the conditions in which people will lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first? Um, so we were astounded by that. We could learn that. So we sent the technology back into Drill Deeper to find out, okay, what are they? If we can predict what these conditions are, could we prevent Wells Fargo's? Could we prevent Volkswagen's? Could we, could we replicate the, the marvelous ingenuity of organizations that are doing it right, that are living purposefully, that are behaving with integrity even when it's hard, that are, that are creating environments of equity and justice? And so we did. And it was thrilling to see that, in fact, there are predictable factors um, and choices that organizations make that will determine whether or not people will tell you the truth, tell you or tell you what you want to hear or tell you a lie, whether they'll behave fairly and thoughtfully to their colleagues or behave in ways that undermine their colleagues and whether they'll serve a greater purpose or they'll serve their own interests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's the book is about. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about this artificial intelligence uh, technology that you have. Uh, so it just goes through the data and found the replicating themes. So uh, IBM Watson, you know, it's a, um, uh, we, we obviously, we, we hired the, the, the scientists to do mm -hmm. it. I, well, I'm, it's way above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, yeah, so basically it's through the, through the, it basically reads the information and, and statistically correlates patterns and themes um, from qualitative to quantitative data and tells you, it helps you build predictive models mm -hmm. based on the behavior it's reading about in these interviews. You know, so it had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of comments uh, uh, and um, uh, expressions of thought and ideas and frustrations from thousands and thousands of people. And so it made sense. So that when, when it came back and said, we think there's something here about honesty, we then created some parameters for it to, to go look deeper mm -hmm. um, and find out what, you know, we gave it a variety of options to look at when you consider, consider an organizational system. Um, and it came back with four very statistically valid and predictive conditions in which you could determine how will people behave. Mm -hmm. And honesty was one of those factors that came up as uh well honesty was the outcome and honesty okay. not just not just defined as truth telling but honesty as defined as three factors truth justice and purpose okay so truth meaning you say the right thing 
Justice meaning you do the right thing and purpose meaning you do the right thing and say the right thing for the right reasons. What we found was that companies are trying to separate those, right? So we have the psychological safety experts getting people to speak up. We have the DNI people trying to create equity through a campaign. And we have um, all the marketers trying to purpose wash, you know, create the illusion of caring about a bigger cause. All of which are largely backfiring or, or making very little headway because they're not integrated. You can't have an environment in which people tell the truth but fake a purpose. Mm-hmm. And have an environment where people serve a purpose where there's inequity and privilege in, in the organization not being addressed. So what the data found was that these three things are highly correlated. Uh, secondly, so, so the four factors the data found were what we call um, one was strategic identity, meaning be who you say you are. So our organizations all equip themselves well with words about they have purpose statements and mission statements and values and things they describe to the world and to their employees about who they intend to be. Turns out these words matter. And if you are who you say you are, meaning if in the mind and experience of your employees and those your company serves, you are in fact embodying the words you claim, you are three times more likely to have people tell you the truth, behave fairly and Mm -hmm. serve a greater good. But if you don't, in other words, if those words are cosmetic, if they're just words on the wall, but not words that appear in the hall, um, and, your, and your employees either don't even know those words or roll their eyes when they hear them, um, you've now institutionalized duplicity, right? You've said, at our company, we say one thing, but we do another. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that's the case, now you are three times more likely, you, you increase your odds by a factor of three that people will lie, cheat, and be self-interested. So that's just an example of one factor. We had four uh, that collectively, the statistical models are cumulative, right? So collectively, if you do these four things well, you've now upped your odds by a factor of 16. So you are 16 times more likely to have an environment in which people will tell you the truth. Um, Even when it's hard, they'll act fairly and equitably to others, and they will serve the purpose of the organization versus serving themselves. But if those four factors are not present, you are now 16 times more likely to find yourself in the headline on a story that you never planned to be in. (laughs) Oh, man. That's crazy, but also believable. I don't know how to describe, like I was reading what you sent and all of these things, they all make sense intuitively to me. Honesty, um, so truth, justice, and purpose, having those things, and then having the four qualities that you're talking about those all make sense intuitively, but I think seeing them on paper is, it justifies why they're important. Do you mind going into uh, just a tiny bit about each of them so that our audience sure. can kind of get a feel so for them? The second, the second was accountability, right? The, the way in which we measure, measure contribution, not the way we reward it, but the way we measure it, right? So you, you've never heard somebody say, wow, I'm so excited to taste my, my performance appraisal, right? <laughs> Because the processes of accountability have become insufferable. They've become, they've been, they've been reduced to processes of accounting. Um, and they're dehumanizing. The very processes that should honor humans and honor my contribution um, have become demoralizing. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, uh, there's a lot of neuroscience in the book about the fact that um, we, we know, for example, when we get put into categories, um, our brain responds with a threat. You know, categorical thinking makes us feel invisible and unsafe. So when you, when all of the sum total of your work gets reduced to, you're a three. You know, I, I actually literally had a client uh, in one of my coaching sessions with an executive open it with his veins and his neck were red 
as he said to me, she gave me a three. I've always been a four. <laughs> but why am I a three? Just because she's got a quota of fours. And she and I get, mm-hmm. why, who got the fours? You know, like this irrational sense and loss of objectivity about himself. So uh, uh, the informal process is you, you, you rarely hear somebody say, wow, today's my, uh, my monthly check with my boss. Can't wait? Because I know I'm going to leave and feel really respected. Right? That's not how it goes. Mm-hmm. So our accountability systems are such that we've, We've separated the contribution from the contributor. Now, in, 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 you know, in, in, in the industrial era, when work was about repeatability and standardization and we were all producing the same body of work and the same widgets, it made sense to separate the human from the work. Mm-hmm. But today, most of our workforces remit is their ideas, their ingenuity, their creativity, their analysis, their, their critical thinking, um, their, their radical ideas. Today, the contribution of the contributor are more fused than ever. You can't say it's not personal. When I evaluate the work, I am by default evaluating the worker, which means how I honor the work also is how I honor the worker. How I dishonor the work means I'm dishonoring the worker. So leaders have to understand that the intimate relationship they have with their people, when they talk about contribution, they've got to take into account that to the person on the other side of the table, what they did is a reflection of who they are. When that's in place, you are four times more likely to have people tell you the truth, behave fairly, and sort of rare to good. Third was governance, transparency. So if the way in which you construct decisions, if the meetings in which people go into are honest and open exchanges of information, healthy places of dissent, and transparent places of decision-making from which I can walk out confident and clear on what I'm supposed to do, you're now three and a half times more likely to have people serve a greater good, behave fairly, and tell you the truth. But if those environments are places where it's orchestrated theater, where it's a ruse, where the only way to get information is to go underground or in the rumor mill, or it's very clear the decision that's being presented to me was already made before I got in the room, and I have no place to get reliable information other than to collude or gossip, um, and the decision-making apparatus before me are anything but trustworthy, now you're three and a half times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and be self-interested. And the last, probably the most surprising to us, was the issue of cross-functional relationships. So we have lots of names for this in organizations. We call them silos. We call them border wars. Mm-hmm. We call them, you know, uh, um, family feuds. Whatever, whatever the name for it, at the intersection of critical adjacent functions like sales and marketing or supply chain and operations or um, the field and headquarters, um, there's a rift. There's a disconnect. It could be because the metrics are they're being measured on opposing things. It could be because the leaders hate each other and they're competing for the same job. It could be because the, co- the processes that are in place to connect the work don't work. Whatever the reason, when that conflict um, becomes intractable, in other words, th- there are certain tensions at the seams of organization that are healthy. The tensions between sales and marketing can play a positive role between the, t- you know, the time zones of today's sales and tomorrow's stories. But when those tensions become toxic or unhealthy or intractable and unresolved, you are six times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and be self-interested because when you fragment the organization, you fragment the truth. So now we have dueling truths. Mm-hmm. So now my goal isn't to, isn't to partner with you to create a greater good. My role is to prove you wrong. Um, so, but when those seams are stitched, when those, you know, those capabilities come together uh, and, and form a muscle that serves the enterprise's competitive aspects. So, so when marketing analytics, marketing and R&D come together and form innovation as the capability, now you're six times more likely to have people tell you the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater purpose. 
So that's a huge factor when you think about today's, the nature of today's work is so highly interdependent and collaborative. There's no one function or team that doesn't have to rely on some other function or team or who, or who doesn't have people rely on them. And yet we treat our divisional loyalties to our own tribe far more importantly than we treat the loyalties to those who depend on us. And when that happens, you really, you break the organization um, and you fragment it and you, you begin to contribute to the Petri dish in which the unethical fungus grows. Those are so important. Again, instinctually, I could tell that all of these made sense to me, but just seeing them on paper, it really does prove that they're incredibly important to the honesty of the organization. I do want to go back to kind of seeing how employees fit into the bigger picture. So I think this is part one. How would you recommend doing this? Because I think what happens, at least from what I've seen from my personal perspective, the lower you're in in an organization, so the more tiers that there are and the lower tier that you're in, not saying it's a bad thing, you're still critical to the operation of the organization, the mission, whatever that is. How would you tell a leader that's maybe just a team lead to really see how they fit into that strategic identity of the organization as a whole, if that is so important? Because from my personal experience, I could definitely tell that it is, uh, because when you don't see how you fit into that, it's hard to continue your work because you're wondering what you're contributing to. So how right. would you help a manager kind of figure that out? So at the, at the very simple thing, talk about it. Right. So bring the mission, bring, bring, bring some statement of identity of your companies into the room and say, how well do we live this? Mm -hmm. What line of sight do we have to how what we do contributes to it? Let's create that if we don't have it. How well do I, as your boss, model these values to you? Give me the truth. You know, do it anonymously. The people won't tell you, tell you to your face. Mm -hmm. um, flip the conversation. Let's pretend you don't work for this company. But let's pretend this company works for you. How is this company a platform for you living out your purpose in the world? How does you sitting at that desk in that cubicle or in that, at that bench or wherever you do your work, how is this a means to your end? Do, do you even know what that end is? Do you have a sense for why you get up in the morning besides the paycheck? So force the conversation. Make it creative. Make it generative. Bring it into the room and spend intentional time talking about um, why the company claims to be there, how your work touches that purpose how your work contributes to the organization living that mission and make it front and center. Um, then allow people the space to really connect what they do to, you know, my purpose to our purpose. Um, and some people might find that, you know what, I'm in the wrong work. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm really passionate about um, isn't my skill set, or my skill set doesn't match the thing I'm passionate about or the thing I'm passionate about is what we do. So then you get to sort of fix that either fix it by finding a different role or shifting some of the work on your plate to work that's more meaningful, uh, that plays to your strengths, or go find another job. Mm -hmm. But yes. the conversation can only be revelatory. It can only be a strengthening of the team's shared remit to the enterprise and to each other. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. So then in part two, talking about accountability, fixing broken processes. Sometimes that's also a scary topic to bring up because sometimes folks don't want to admit that maybe a process needs to be fixed. So what would be something that a leader could do or an employee could do to bring accountability to that? Well, so let's, let's, you know, let, let's look at the, the, imagine the leader listening to this, Sarah saying, mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't know an HR. I can't tell HR to fix performance. We all, we all know the process sucks. We all hate the forms. We all hate the, 
annual drill. None of us think it's any meaningful. Even they know it's not meaningful. What can I do? That's okay. That's not the issue. The issue is what, how intimate is your relationship with those you lead? When you sit and talk about performance with them, about what they contributed to, about how they're growing, about your understanding of their work, how well do they, be, do they feel seen and known by you? How well do they believe you really understand what it took for them to accomplish what they did? Or when they fall short, how do you treat that failure? You treat it as blameworthy or you treat it as a learning opportunity? When they come to you for help, how does that go? Do they hide their need for help from you because they're afraid of you? So you have a lot of control over the accountability experience of your employees just in how you build a relationship with them. And here's a really simple tool. The next time somebody does something that you think was a great job, don't do the obligatory, hey, nice job, thanks so much, or high five, or something that whenever I speak to audiences, Sarah, I ask the question, how many of you have ever received what was intended to be a compliment from your boss that mm-hmm. actually felt insulting? Mm-hmm. And more than half the room raises their hands, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because, and when I ask why, they say he or she had no idea what they were saying, or it felt obligatory, or it felt like they, they just were faking it. Mm-hmm. Next time someone completes a product reach a result or does something that you really value, stop and say, you know what? I'm pretty sure I don't know what it really took for you to get there. Tell me the story. How'd you do it? And ask for the story. And then listen, listen attentively to it. Watch where they become animated. Watch how they light up about the things that went well. Watch how vulnerable they are to you when the things didn't go well. Ask what they learned about it. Ask how what you could have done better as a boss to support them. Take the 12 or 15 minutes to let them marinate and luxuriate in their own story and hold it with honor. Then you will have earned your right to say thank you. Then you will have earned your right to praise it. And then you will have earned your right to coach them on places where they could have done better. Mm -hmm. Simply indulge the story of their work because the story of their work is is their own story. And when they trust that you know their work, they will trust that you know them. And when they trust that you know them, it will want to perform better for you. Yes. And the reason I wanted to touch back on part, the um, strategic identity and accountability was because it sounds like leaders have very big impacts in both of those. And it sounds like the leaders have to be pretty vulnerable in order for those things to be impactful and successful. Well, I think, I think I'd probably say that is true of all four of them, Sarah. I think, I think a leader's vulnerability in decision-making is, is saying the words, I don't know, or yes. we made, we made a mistake. Or I don't know how to make this decision, or I don't have the right data, or I'm I'm not going to include you in this choice. I'm making it myself, and I need you to carry it out. Or mm-hmm. this is going to be a really unpopular choice, and it's going to be frustrating. But we need to do it, right? Being honest about the choice making apparatus and what people, the role people do and don't play in it, is is a vulnerable thing for leaders to do. Same with cross functional relationships, right? If you know your relationship with a part with a colleague in, a, in an adjacent space is is um, struggling. It's like a family. When mom and dad fight, so do the kids. Mm-hmm. So if your team is struggling to deliver on the commitments to a partner or vice versa, check out your relationship with that, with that boss because it could be you that's causing that rift. Um, if there are metrics that aren't aligned, if what you're being measured against opposes what a partner is being measured against, go sit with that leader and say, hey, how do we fix this? Mm-hmm. Don't just let it fester um, as if it was – because what might be a minor annoyance to you – could be a major impediment to the people that you lead, um, and you can't. And and your ignoring of it just condones it. Yes, it's very true. I I agree with you on the 
vulnerability. Uh, just from reading it, though, I was like, oh, that must be higher up in the organization. But what you said is totally true because it can be more direct leaders and team leads and managers at any level. All of us have a role to play in making our environments more honest, more truthful, just, and purposeful. We can, we can choose not to. We can say, well, that's not my job, or I don't have enough clout, or my role. You know, we can make all kinds of justifications for why we don't, don't but that's what they are. Um, we take ourselves out of the game. Uh, but the reality is every one of us can show up at work every day and make ourselves and our environments more honest places. Yes, completely agree. Looking at purpose and strategic identity again. So it's you said that it's three times more likely that workers will withhold the truth, act unjustly or without purpose. So my question to you is, why are purpose and honesty so connected? Well, I think, in, in, in a, I mean, we, we know that more than half the workforce today lacks meaning. And we know that, especially, you know, future generations of the workforce, millennials and Gen Zers, are desperate to know they matter, are desperate to know that their work makes a difference. All human beings come hardwired with a need to know that we matter. Mm-hmm. The problem is when that need is, need is not met, we default to a counterfeit need, the need to look like we matter. Uh-huh. And that's the need, that's the need we, we end up indulging when we don't feel significant. Mm-hmm. My God, job now is to convince you that I'm important, that I'm smart, that I'm put together, that I know what I'm talking about, that I'm imper- impervious. And now I have to create the illusion of significance because I don't feel genuinely significant. So now I have all this orchestrated theater of people sort of displaying these veneers of themselves mm-hmm. rather than their, their authentic selves. You cannot serve an authentic purpose if you can't be your authentic self, if you're hiding. So it's dishonest to serve a purpose you don't believe in. It's dishonest to hide behind a veneer uh, in the illusion of serving that purpose, right? So you can't have authenticity uh, in who you are or what you're serving if, they don't, if they're not aligned. That makes total sense. Because I, I mean, you see it at work all the time. You see the people who are like standing up in front of the room and you're like, do you actually know what you're talking about? <laughs> and uh, why are we here today? <laughs> but you know what? And, and, and how many times, Sarah, have you seen in that room? Nobody says anything. Right. We're all exchanging our knowing glances. We're all sort of rolling our eyes at our friends, but nobody says anything in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the hallway or over the water cooler or over the urinal or over the coffee pot, we, we say it all. Can you believe that crap? And you, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's an environment that is clearly promoting duplicity. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing in any meeting. What, what about in the meeting where we, I mean, this is the classic, right? Where, where it's forecast time for next year. Everybody's up presenting their goals for the coming year. And, you know, here's what the target, targets we're going to hit. And, and nobody in the room believes it. <laughs> we just came off a oh, crappy. God. We just came off a crappy year, so everybody knows that they're grandstanding to try and look heroic in front of the leaders. Nobody thinks for a minute these commitments are plausible. The most you might get from somebody in that conversation is, wow, Bill, interesting forecast. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's going to say, so Bill, I'm curious. You've missed your targets for the last nine quarters in a row. Tell me why we should believe that this time is going to be different. Yep. But they're all thinking it. Mm-hmm. Right? What would it take for someone to find the courage to call flag on the plane and go, Bill, really? One more time? Well, why isn't Bill's boss taking him aside and saying, hey, just so you know, not one person in the room believed what you had to say. You have a credibility problem. 
and we can fix it in one of two ways. You can go apologize and get it right, or you can leave. Mm-hmm. Now, now I've taken purpose, accountability, transparency, and relationship to a new degree because I've been straightforward with Bill. Mm-hmm. I should have been straightforward with him two years ago. But at least I'm not going to perpetuate the problem by allowing him to, first of all, it's cruel to let Bill languish in obscurity in front of all his rooms, twisting in the wind when he's the only one that doesn't know he, that's happening or seems to be the, in the most denial about it. And it happens every single day in mm-hmm. organization, right? And so we've, we, don't, we, we don't appreciate how toxically destructive those everyday experiences really are. Mm-hmm. What would be, as somebody going through this, either as an employer or as a leader, what would be your advice to them going through something like that? And they just, they know that they're impacted by either a meeting like that, where they're like, well, we're definitely not going to make that goal, but somebody's already brought it up and they don't believe it. Or they're a leader and they're like, well, my boss really wants this goal to happen. So I'm going to make it happen, even though I don't think we're going to get it. So what advice would you give to them as they live through this? You just recognize you've, you've just mortgaged your soul, right? You just sold a little piece of yourself. You just immortalized you and your team a little bit more. Rather than having the courage to go to your boss, hopefully you have enough relationship with your boss. You have the credibility. I mean, if you have no relationship with your boss, you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. But a kind of relationship where your boss could hear from you, hey, Joe, let's can we talk about that goal. I, I don't know. I, I can see why you appreciate you want that. I can see why you want to push it. But can we talk about why you believe it's possible? What, what resources are you seeing? What market opportunities are you seeing? What, can, what are you seeing that's telling you we can achieve that? Because from where I'm sitting, I think it's a, it's a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we, we've been set up to fail. Uh, in the timeline you've given us, with the limited resources you've given us, and some factor of what you've asked for, I appreciate the hope for miracles. But from a practical point of view, can we talk about the risks here? Because if you want me to go take the hill with my team confidently, I need to know why you're believing or what you're seeing that I'm not. Mm-hmm. And engage them in that conversation. I mean, what, you, you're either, it's pay now or pay later, right? It's either have the conversation up front and, and get the honest truth on the table and engage your boss, even though he might be disappointed or frustrated or, or in denial or stubborn. <laughs> yeah. You do it now. Yeah. Or you do it in six or eight months when, th- when things go sideways or the whole thing fails, right? Now, now you have to make up some excuse about, you know, or who to blame mm-hmm. when it doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. Or then, then you got to pull out the whole, well, I try to tell you, but card, which is just going to make them even matter. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're just deferring the pain yes. or, or you're, you're dumb for betting on the miracle. Yeah. I think a lot of people do that. <laughs> well, it's just, it's foolish, right? It's, it's we, denial yeah. is such a, denial is such a wonderful fall. It just, it's like a, it's like a numbing agent, right? It's like Novocaine. Mm-hmm. Or it's just it's, yeah, or you just sit back and you're like, well, I don't, I'm just gonna. In the military, we call this a yes, sir. We'll go ahead and call her. Like it's just one of those things where it's like, well, they're telling us to do it, and we're just gonna go do. <laughs> so and, and and think about. I mean, just just know that every time you say something like, well, what are you gonna do? I, I didn't make. It wasn't my decision. You're saying I don't care. You're saying mm-hmm. I'm on the planet to mark yes. time. Yep. I'm the reason I'm here is to get a paycheck, right? Mm-hmm. What you're setting yourself up for is when you're 45 years old, waking up with depression, anxiety, and a sense of deep futility. Every single time you you separate yourself from a choice you know to be subpar or suboptimal, um, you sell a piece of your soul. You can make that choice in hopes that somehow it's all going to reconcile itself, and suddenly I'll feel good about my work one day. That never happens. 
men and women today are waking up every single day, suddenly in their 40s, suddenly in their early 50s, depressed, anxious, suicidal, futile, and uncertain about why they're even on the planet because of because they spent decades making choices like the one you just described. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Was there anything else besides the unity between like organizational groups that you found surprising throughout all the studying? Well, I think I think uh, it was the interesting intersections between truth, justice, and purpose, right? So we have such limited definitions of honesty as, you know, tell the truth and don't lie. Mm-hmm. But to begin to see how how we treat each other uh, in terms of justice, you know, the issue of equality, the issue of um, equitable opportunity, uh, and the issue of serving a greater good, of feeling part of a bigger story, how those are all so interrelated to the definition of honesty. So I think it was the, the reconception of that word that was really a refreshing surprise to me. The, the thing I think I would say was the most inspiring was, so the, this book is about heroes. Mm-hmm. I did not want to write about the villains. I didn't want to write about the, you know, Theranos and the bad blood story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I didn't want to write about Wells Fargo. I didn't want to write about Boeing, NASA, you know, the endless stories. I, there, there's a couple of very brief honorable mentions of some of those stories. But what I wanted to do was write about the heroes. Mm-hmm. Who are the people we want to emulate? Who are the people who's, who've, who've got these things well, who are lit embodying them, whose stories we might learn from? Um, and so that's what this book is about, is a, is, a, is, a, is a treasure trove of extraordinary human beings doing extraordinary things who are really just ordinary people, who've committed to being honest in these ways. So for me, being able to luxuriate in that many stories, to meet and interview that many people, to examine the work of that many exemplars was nothing short of inspiring. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful surprise for me was that there are better, more good apples than bad apples. The bad apples get the headline attention, so we, we give them more voice than they're due. But the reality is they're a loud minority. The truth is there are more leaders genuinely wanting to do it right mm-hmm. and working really hard to model these behaviors and, and doing it successfully. And so for me, it was the privilege of telling their story and letting the world sort of have a front row seat to people we'd all love to be like and all love to work for. Uh, that was the wonderful part of this project. I think we all want to hear more stories about those because I do find hearing about these amazing leaders who, as you say, get it right, it's refreshing because you do hear a lot about the bad leaders, but um, it's the good leaders who inspire the people who are just starting to grow in their careers to become more. Is there someone who stood out to you or a several few who uh, were just awesome? Oh my and- God. There were <laughs> oh, so many. Yeah. Uh, Hubert Jolie at Best Buy. Um, okay. Ed Townley at Cabot Creamery. Uh, Indra Nuri at PepsiCo. Um, uh, Jacinda Ardern, the prime minister of, of uh, New Zealand. Yes. Uh, I mean, I just, I can go on and on. There were so many. Oh, that's amazing. Stories. Ginger, Ginger Graham at, uh, at Guidance Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are just dozens and scores and scores of those stories. Uh, of people I got to interview. Rob Balat, who, uh, if you saw the movie Dark Waters. Yes. Uh, um, so Mark Ruffalo plays Rob Balat, the attorney. Okay. Took, uh, so I got to interview him. Tell, oh, that's amazing. Uh, and tell the, uh, tell the DuPont story. In contrast to um, Vincent Stanley, one of the founders of Patagonia, right? So here's two companies. Uh, they're a pretty featured case in the book. 
Here's two companies that both learned in the 80s that their products were poisoning people. Mm -hmm. Patagonia did one thing and DuPont did another. Uh, same choice, same opportunity, same horrible challenge. Two very different sets of choices. Um, and, you know, talking to both those people and really getting to luxury and do the research on understanding how both those stories played out. Uh, and, and then, of course, for me, the, the DuPont story wasn't so much the featured issue about mm -hmm. the people. It was Rob Balat's multi-decade pursuit of justice for the people that DuPont hurt that I think was the inspiring thing, that justice is something we all have to fight for, for those who don't get it. Mm -hmm. That's truly inspiring. I cannot wait to read this book. I'm so excited to. <laughs> um, so when is it coming out? When can the audience it will be out? It will be out in the spring of 2021. In the meantime, oh, that's we, exciting. In the meantime, we've, we've done, we're doing a series of webinars that okay. people can sign up for. So if you come uh, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter and you'll see uh, we've done two. We're doing a four part webinar series for each of the four parts of the book. There's a um, if you go to the um, Navalent YouTube page, um, you'll find the To Be Honest videos. You can watch them there. Um, and then each of them, there's a sort of a introduction to the book and there's a, a, a short video on each part of the book. And then there's a webinar for each. So we've done the uh, Be Who You Say You Are and Justice and Accountability webinars. In January, we'll do the Transparency in Decision-Making and Unity uh, in the Audition webinars. And then after that, we've got a whole news magazine show launching called Moments of Truth, where all the interviews of the cool people I just told you about, mm -hmm. I'm going to be sharing some of the video interviews with them. Oh, that's amazing. I've got two other co-hosts uh, who are also going to do segments on Everyday Justice, interviewing some great local heroes and finding your voice. Uh, so Khalil Smith and Jared Chappelle will join me for those episodes. And there'll be 15 episodes that will run every week, right up until the launch of the book. So plenty of opportunity to enjoy the book before it actually comes out. And of course, by all means, please put the link in your show notes so people can yes. pre-order because pre-orders do help. Yes, definitely. I'll do all of that. And uh, where else can uh, the audience find information about you? What's your website or anything else? So come visit us at navalint.com. Uh, you can find all kinds of um, articles and videos. All the videos by our common friend Tom Kimball are there. Mm -hmm. um, shout out to Tom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great white papers, some, some free ebooks on leading transformation. Or if you're now facing the issue of how to design a virtual workplace, we have a, mm -hmm. a brand new free ebook on that uh, at navlon.com slash virtual. Um, if you want to know more about the book, come to tobehonest.net. Okay. Um, where you'll find the videos, you'll find articles, you'll find to be ability to pre-order the book. So come visit us that, at that website as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ron. I, I totally am going to nerd out on all the stuff that you just talked about because that is like, I live for TED Talks and webinars and stuff like that. So I will be one of those people listening in <laughs> until your book comes out. And thank you again for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Sarah, it's a pleasure. You enjoy the rest of your day and year. Have a wonderful holiday season and a history great 2021. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lead Into It. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help future listeners. If you want to learn more about the podcast or me, go to leadintoit.co. That's leadintoit.co. Thanks again.